You're listening to San Antonio Public Library's podcast, Tuned In. This podcast is made possible through the generosity of the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. Our sound engineer is Dan Garcia. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at guides.mysapl.org slash SAPL tuned in. Hello, everyone. This is the Tuned In Podcast team from San Antonio Public Library. And today I have Raquel. Hello. Dan. And a newbie. We have Enrique with us, but he's not on the mic. So everyone say hello to Enrique. Hello, Enrique. And today our guest is a PhD, Dr. Young. He's a poet. He is a professor. And he's going to grace us today with his presence and all his wisdom. How are you doing today, Dr. Young? I'm doing great. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh Please just call me Reggie. Yes, sir. So, Dr. Reggie, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your educational background and how your roots. Well, I'm originally from Chicago. Uh, or, well, I should say originally from Louisville, but I grew up from in Chicago. Uh, went up north, uh, family during what was called the latter stages of the Great Migration, and we settled on the west side of the city, which uh, people tend to know about the south side. But... Uh, uh, grew up on the west side and so it was a rough part of town if you ever watch uh, uh, Chicago PD that's yeah. where uh, they go bust all the drug dealers and gangs uh, oh, wow. over in that neighborhood and black I grew up on uh, the TV show seamless uh, actually films there uh, they bought a house and so if you live in that neighborhood you can't come home until after they finish <laughs> filming during the day. but um, I uh, was kind of fortunate that I grew up at a time when uh, opportunities were expanding for minorities mm-hmm. in higher education, and uh, I was a terrible high school student. Uh, a lot of it was that I was ADD before um, ADD was That's actually thing. invented, the, right. the name. Uh, but uh, when I went to college, uh, I did really well and found uh, that uh, it was something I could do. My father was a mechanic. I hated tools. <laughs> I hated grease and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but I'd always loved books. I grew up reading comic books. Had a large collection. So, uh, and uh, early books like David Copperfield, uh, uh, Dickens. Uh, someone just did a. Uh, a revision of it. It's a dark David Copperfield or something. It's huh. a new novel just coming out. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. uh, books like that and uh, my Bible uh, was Ventures uh, of Huckleberry Finn. So uh, literature, reading was uh, early part of my life. And uh, so went to University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, had no idea I would stay long enough uh, to complete a doctorate. Right. Truthfully, I didn't know what to do with the doctorate. It was just comfortable <laughs> being in the school, and then I had job offers and okay. wound up in higher ed and uh, started at Villanova University. Uh, went to a lot of different schools, including LSU, uh, Wheaton College in Illinois, and wound up uh, at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette wow. toward the end of my career. Okay. So you mentioned that literature was a big part of your life. What influences made you choose poetry? I know Langston Hughes was a right. good, big, big stylistic influence on you, but what other influences did you have besides Langston Hughes? Uh, 
Early on, there was a, a writer, Gene Toomer, who wrote a book called Cain, one, one of the most beautiful books I think ever written, most important or one of the most important works of the Harlem Renaissance. And I had a, it'd be um, English teacher as a junior in high school, Farragut High School, and he gave me a, a bunch of books, including Cain. And the first chapter is about, it's titled Corintha, and um, I thought I was in love with Corintha and it took me years <laughs> to realize that I didn't love Corintha. I loved the language <laughs> of, of the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was a, a book of prose vignettes and um, poetry. And so uh, writers like Gene Toomer, um, County Cullen, uh, I grew up around uh, reading uh, Amir Baraka when he was Leroy Jones. Uh, Dano Lee, who's now known as Hakimata Booty, Gwendolyn Brooks, she was uh, the poet laureate of Chicago and the state of Illinois. So uh, those kinds of influences, uh, I had a anthology called Black Voices, remember it cost 79 cents, it's probably $10 now, mm. but it had um, samples from James Baldwin, uh, just about everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, I read it and reread it and reread it. And um, so my influences were earlier generations of, mm-hmm. uh, of African American writers, uh, especially Har- Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. When you became a professor, yes. Langston Hughes, it resonated with you. Those other writers resonated with you. What message did you want to give your students that them, you wanted them to retain? from the message and the teachings and the, and the poetry that you taught them? When I started teaching, tradition was very big because okay. people didn't realize there was a tradition of African-American writing. Uh, I have a friend here who uh, took a, a Latino literature class. He worked for AT&T, but 30, 40 years ago at Our Lady of the Lake, and uh, no one knew there was a Latino uh, a tradition in literature it had mm-hmm. to be f- discovered. It had to be compiled and collected. So uh, most classes I taught uh, were survey courses, and we'd start from slave narratives and work our way on up to present day uh, through Richard Wright onto Toni Morrison and mm-hmm. such. So uh, identifying or, or helping students understand there's a tradition. And also the theme, if you were to read uh, the Norn Anthology of African-American literature, that the uh, uh, main editor, Henry Louis Gates, talks about the most important theme in African-American literature, liberation, is freedom. And for me as a teacher, that's something that just seemed natural to to emphasize because uh, I grew up during the Civil Rights Movement, and I remember... uh, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, throwing the word freedom around, liberation, and things like that, which might sound strange to my daughter today and other mm-hmm. young people, but it was important for us. So the social content of the literature along with the writing right. was very important. Okay. And I want to touch base on that between when you were attending college to get your PhD, was there did you feel any kind of way that you're an African-American working on your PhD, your African-American higher education, working towards those goals? How was that experience? It was interesting. Uh, 
I grew up in a segregated part of the city, so bec uh, finding myself as an undergrad, we had a black student organization and I was involved with it, but as a graduate student, uh, those things didn't exist. So I was the only African American in uh, the graduate program mm -hmm. at UIC at the time. And uh, uh, in some ways I had to teach my professors how to teach me as much as um, uh, just letting them teach me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was also a matter of wanting their respect. I had a Shakespeare class, uh, uh, someone I, I, I really respect today, but when I, I was his, I think, at the graduate level, first student of color, Marty Wine, who was a famous Shakespeare scholar, and he was really hard on me, mm. but I, uh, I mastered it. I did well, and I had ideas. And my one of my first papers I presented publicly was uh, from a uh, British Renaissance uh, drama class mm. that was exclusive of Shakespeare. And it was on a playful laster. I can't even remember who wrote it. And uh, I think I did a comparative paper with a, a Shakespeare play. And uh, it was a really good paper. And through doing things like that, it made not only Professor Wine respect my potential, but others in the department. Right. That's great to hear. That's good to hear. I know I attended, I got my master's degree at Southwest Texas State University, Texas State University. And those two African Americans in the political science program, political administration program, it wasn't as diverse because we had a lot of people of color, uh, which we were only two African Americans. So I just wondering, Chicago, you're up north, how big of a difference it was then? <laughs> well, a university in a city, in a big city, is like a world. That's very true. To itself, mm -hmm. that you have these walls, like politicians talking about building walls at the border. Well, UIC had actual walls. It was located right next to the Mark, uh, Maxwell Street, a famous fleet market, okay. uh, right off of Roosevelt Road. And uh, the university didn't want any of the neighborhood people venturing onto its campus. Mm. So um, it wasn't like you were, I might as well have been in the suburbs. Okay in college okay. Wow. okay the only good thing was we were blocks away from great restaurants and, you know, <laughs> that's very true so it sounds like you have a lot of diversity that you've had to go through just to i'm sure it's prominent in your writing or do you try to kind of hold that back a little bit and do it more nuanced no in my uh, especially prose, I do write about, uh, I just call it fish out of water stories. Okay. Uh, and it also means that you're often uh, kind of alienated, uh, you're, it, you know, you're alone. So right. I tend to write about characters who are, who are loners, who are uh, uh, introspective, um, intellectual in a world where intellectualism is not valued. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, especially in, in prose, I, I explore those kinds of themes because that's my life. Right. And I project it onto the characters I write about. That's awesome. So I have another question for you. Recently, you were at the, the San Antonio Book Festival, and you're currently 
working with San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture for a, a project. Can you explain some of the things you did in San Antonio? Oh, sure. I uh, applied for a uh, individual artist grant from the uh, Department of Arts and Culture here in San Antonio, and it was successful. And the project I applied for, uh, wanting, uh, you know, what am I going to write about San Antonio as an outsider? So I needed an outsider figure. And uh, I used the uh, legendary blues musician Robert Johnson because people in San Antonio most don't realize that he recorded his, all of his music was recorded in Texas, and uh, most of it was recorded in San Antonio downtown at the Gunther Hotel. I did not know that. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so, uh, and I learned it because I was here for a conference in 2008, I believe, at the Gunther Hotel. It was a, a literature and poetry conference, and uh, there's a room there with a plaque, Robert Johnson. What What are you doing with a Robert Johnson room here? <laughs> and that's when I learned the story. So I used Johnson to uh, come back to, uh, okay, I'm a comic book nerd, so uh, I'm thinking about this after Doctor Strange and the multiverse of madness <laughs> and about this whole thing of different uh, realities and portals, travel between one another. Johnson was supposed to have uh, sold his soul to the devil for his talent, and he disappeared at the crossroads mm -hmm. in 1938. I have him re in San Antonio in 2022. And uh, so I, I use Helm as a way of um, exploring those kinds of themes of someone out of place and time, mm -hmm. but also San Antonio because he shows up uh, near the Alamo Dome, which was once a vibrant African-American community. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so he shows up in the middle of Cherry or Hackberry or Street, and you know all these cars are speeding by. He's never seen a car. Um, don't how if you're from the past, how do you account understand, for that? Understand, yeah. yeah. How do you understand and it? And so uh, I just try to play with her from there and uh, to see where it would take me uh, and uh, writing about San Antonio through the perspective of someone like Robert Johnson. Okay. Hmm. What made you choose the city of San Antonio to come to this project? Well, I'm good friends of Sandra Cisneros, and we were uh, young poets in the schools together mm. back uh, when we were much younger. And um, she has an organization she founded called Mogando, which meets here every last week of July. And I joined Mogando around the time of that conference in 2008, 2009 and uh, would come here every year for that, but also uh, I would, she'd put me up at her house. Uh, I'd watch her, she had seven dogs at the time, the famous <laughs> purple house that oh, got yeah. her into a lot of controversy with uh, uh, historical preservation here in San Antonio. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, um, San Antonio outside of where I was living in Louisiana. I knew I didn't want to go north again. I didn't want my toes to freeze anymore. <laughs> uh, so it seemed like um, it was a place I, I thought I knew best, mm -hmm. and it seemed like it would be a good place to come and, and settle. Uh, and as an undergrad and a grad school, I was a Latin Amer American Studies 
uh, minor. I worked for the Latino Cultural Center, mm. uh, and I lived uh, a block away from the barrio. The ghetto and the barrio were like a block from each other, so mm -hmm. I had a lot of uh, um, Mexican-American friends growing up, so mm -hmm. it seemed like a place where I, I, I might feel at home. Okay. Mm. Clearly, you've liked it enough to stay around. <laughs> well, you know, the way the economy is, if I didn't like it, I couldn't afford to go anywhere anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. That's <laughs> very true. No, it's, it's been good. Uh, you know, when you settle in a place, you, you have to embrace the good and mm -hmm. the bad. And right. San Antonio, especially the east side, south side, uh, parts of the west side, or uh, it's like in the Bible that... Uh, uh, where there's a mention of we put all our attention into the glorious parts of the body and we neglect the unglorious mm -hmm. parts. And uh, I, I live in one of the more unglorious parts of San Antonio, but it's still, uh, it's still a place I can identify with. Mm -hmm. And it's from that perspective I view the larger city. And I know that the people who are there, who are largely unseen, mm -hmm. mostly, I live in a Mexican-American community near Michigan Concepcion, this working class. And right. uh, they have ways of celebrating life that uh, might be different than people of around the Pearl and Alamo Heights. Right, right? Right. But I, I respect it a great deal because they celebrate their being, their culture, mm -hmm. they have a way of doing that in ways that we do not always uh, recognize right, or understand. Right. Okay. And since you mentioned that there's different sizes of town, I know you've done a lot of work with the Carver Branch Library. Can you expand on those experiences? Sure. When I, it's interesting. When I first came here, I heard about the Carver. I went over there and uh, took a few boxes of books, anthologies, and critical studies in African-American literature, and I wrote a letter and said, hey, I'm new in town. I'd be happy to teach a workshop, do a reading, this or that. Never mm. heard anything. <laughs> Never. <laughs> so I wrote off to Carver. But several years later, uh, was, I guess last year, vocab uh, uh, Andrea Sanderson said I should go and talk to D.L. Grant, uh, the director, um, and just see what happened. And so I went over there, and he said, you're Richie Young. I have your letter on my desk. I had lost it and this and that. Oh, and no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And so after that, uh, I've been going there regularly. Uh, have, uh, I did a reading there and also helped arrange a couple other readings and will uh, help arrange readings in the future to try to attract attention. Mm -hmm. from the rest of the city to the east side and to the Carver and help the Carver establish a reputation as a, a, a literary place right. in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Because D.L. <laughs> D.L. recently had the Pan-African Festival at his, at his branch and it was a huge success and he does mm -hmm. those every year. So he's very in tune with the, with the community and he right. always embraces anyone who can help you know, get the word out. So I really do appreciate you helping out with that. And you also have a guest poet come by, uh, Heard. Yeah, Clemence Heard, who uh, did a residency here in San Antonio during the pandemic. 
and he was all alone. Uh, I hadn't met him. No right. one, you know, people don't think, okay, there's an African-American writer here, and there's an African-American writer who lives here. Maybe they should meet each other. <laughs> and it was just by chance. He had gone into a coffee shop I, I uh, hang out at, Poetic Republic, mm-hmm. and the uh, manager said there, told me about him, and Clemence heard. Who is he? And I looked him up, and he was a Saladias uh, doing a, a, a residency. So I tracked him down, and uh, we became friends. And uh, Sydney, my daughter, and I, we had him over for um, uh, Thanksgiving and New, no Christmas and uh, New Year's dinner before he left, arranged reading for him at uh, the Twig Bookstore. But later, um, just uh, February in the Black History Month, mm-hmm. he was going to be in the area, so we set it up for him to do a reading at the Carver, which was highly successful in his book, mm-hmm. Tragic, uh, tra- uh, oh, what is it? Um, He's going to jump on me. I forgot the name of his book, but it um, focuses on the um, basically the race riot in Tulsa that most people didn't know about until 2020 that it had existed. Mm -hmm. And um, so he did a residency in Tulsa and found out about it. He's from New Orleans, and he uh, wanted to to write about. The history, but also what it's like to be in Tulsa today. Mm-hmm. And so, Tragic City is the name of his book, and it's a great book, award winning book of poetry. Wow. Yeah. And you know, that's it's ironic you say that because I think Watchmen series <laughs> brought the Tulsa incident to light with that, with that, with that series with mm-hmm. Regina, Regina, Regina King. King, that's right. That's right. And it's very different than the comic books and the original Watchmen movie, but uh, it's really uh, great. The uh, imagination that uh, uh, the writers and uh, director-producer put into it mm-hmm. to center it in Tulsa and make it a, you know, it's a, a, a movie that, uh, you know, the fate of the world rests right. in the mm-hmm. hands of these offbeat Superheroes, if you can <laughs> very call them that. Yes. Right. yes. Very interesting. Very interesting. We mentioned earlier how one of your things was your race in between the lines. So, can you expand on on that on that phrase? I'm probably mis, mis- saying it, but expand on how you felt about that, how your experiences with that, because I resonate with that a lot. Because being African American, going to a predominantly all white school, growing up in San Antonio, I always been like the odd man out. So I really resonated with that with that sentence in that paragraph you wrote about that. Well, I'm working on a, a book of memoirs. Uh, I've published a couple of them already. Uh, and my working title is Running in Slash Between the Races. And um, the stories are about, uh, mostly about me being, my times uh, being alienated or outside of an African-American cultural community. Mm-hmm. And so in the university as a student at many schools or uh, especially as a professor, mm-hmm. I was generally the only person of color in the departments I work for, not even, uh, you know, people of uh, uh Hispanic heritage, nothing, mm-hmm. it just me and, you know, uh, and a white uh, 
were white colleagues, predominantly white colleagues. Mm-hmm. And um, so when you work, especially, I spent a year at Hamilton College in uh, Clinton, New York. Mm-hmm. There were more deer than <laughs> people of color, and the only mm-hmm. people of color was, were the pe- members of our family. So uh, you are in a, what you might think of as a white world, but when you leave your uh, indigenous, your setting of origins, place you grew up, you're no longer a part of that place. I can't go back to Chicago and, and fit in. You mm-hmm. know, it's changed. And so you, uh, I found myself loving between white culture and mm-hmm. black culture because I wasn't a part of the same you know I didn't relate to a lot of what my colleagues uh, um, were into mm-hmm. the kind of lives the, the cultural lives but I, I lived miles and miles away from other black people and then in places like Lafayette Louisiana mm-hmm. the black community was very poor was uneducated and for someone for me to move there I, I wouldn't fit with them right. especially not being from the south mm-hmm. and and so you observe both and you uh, um, have a different perspective that you're, you you see the world not being a part of something mm-hmm. but you see the parts of it that are around you how people act the music they listen to mm-hmm. uh foods dress and it's not always bad because when you live when you never leave your place of comfort mm-hmm. there's a lot you don't experience right, right. that is good mm-hmm. so you can't say you know uh sushi's terrible or uh, you know no it's right. really good you might just not have had good sushi yeah yeah <laughs> uh, or that it's not part of mm-hmm. you know the right. n- neighborhood or the it's community. not something you're you've ever encountered before yeah, it just seems mm-hmm. foreign and it's it's interesting you say that because i can only imagine moving from chicago north and going as Far south as Lafayette, Louisiana, that had to be a, a huge culture, culture shock. shock. <laughs> oh, it was. I was scared. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I, I went to Baton Rouge first. I went to Baton Rouge. Okay, so you had a little step and before you went to. And um, afraid of things like lynching. A friend of mine, I told him I was going to LSU, I was going to Baton Rouge, and said they still lynch black folks down there, don't they? <laughs> and I had no idea. But, uh, it was, you know, Baton Rouge isn't as much Cajun as Lafayette, mm-hmm. and it's an hour away from New Orleans, right. and the food was good, but the thing is, people are nice. Yeah. In the north, uh, you walk down the street, no one speaks to you if you speak to someone. Right. They're, well, these days, they're ready to pull out their gun. Southern hospitality. Yes, but people would speak. I was in a Sam's, and there was a whole row of red packages of coffee, community coffee. And I asked this man, is this coffee any good? And he said, state coffee, Louisiana. And he <laughs> bought me a bag. Wow. wow. Yeah. 
and so you you have those kinds of experiences, mm-hmm. and uh, it lets you know that you know the world is made up of connected parts. And in Chicago, if you walked into an Irish, if I walked into an Irish neighborhood or Italian neighborhood, I'd get chased. People throw bricks at me. Mm. Well, the South isn't necessarily as segregated in those kinds of ways. Mm. It's more political and it's tied to this thing called tradition. But um, people when they they have ways of interacting with each other and knowing each other and that was something uh, it made the south a very different place than what i expected because Mm of what you see on television news shows and things like that that's very true very true i just i go to chicago when i go to i'm a big Notre dame fan so i will go to south Bend. and the first time i went to chicago i just thought of good times because the L train. <laughs> and it's like, it hasn't changed since the show was on TV. And actually, rode an L train. It was the scariest thing in my life. Not because of who was on the train, but it stops like for 30 seconds and just close up and takes off. That was that was very enlightening. But Chicago, <laughs> Chicago has great food. I love Chicago. Chicago has great food. has that L train. Reminds me of good times. <laughs> Traffic is horrible. Horrible. But I, I couldn't imagine... St- living there because I only go in September. I can't go anytime in the fall or, or the winter because <laughs> it's too cold. No, being a Texas boy, I can't do that. But it's it's interesting how you mentioned Irish community, the Italian community. And I think down south, it's more the east side or the west mm-hmm. side. But like in San Antonio, the east side is predominantly African-American. The mm-hmm. west side is predominantly Mexican-American. The north side is predominantly Caucasian. But in different cities in the south, mm-hmm. it's, it's switched up. But in the North, it's always going to be Italian, Irish, maybe uh, Asian. But it's always, that's just an interesting perspective that you just brought Hmm. up that I was thinking about. Yeah, Eastern European neighborhoods. uh, In college, one of my best friends was a Romanian, a poet. uh, Had a lot of Jewish friends. And Mm -hmm. I met Villanova had, my office mate was Jewish. But when I went to the South... I see any Jews. I was like, something's missing. <laughs> Where do you get a bagel? <laughs> or do you? Yeah. But you know, culturally, there's uh, we have a, a, a long history mm-hmm. of relationships with uh, the Jewish community, right. African Americans mm-hmm. and, uh, and Jews, and uh, it was something I found myself missing quite a bit. Even my professors were often Jewish. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, was a student teacher at uh, Illinois Chicago, I uh, had Jewish students. So uh, mm-hmm. it was something missing. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting because recently we did a Learn to Remember for January. We did have a Learn to Remember of the Holocaust. And we went to, we have a Holocaust Museum here. And I went there, I was talking to a colleague here. I was like, you know, it's the first time I've ever been there. And she's Jewish. She's like, well, mm-hmm. have you been to a service? Like, I've never been to service. Said, Why? Because I never knew anybody Jewish. I've never been asked. Mm-hmm. So she asked me to go to a, a service. And I went to a service. It was it was very enlightening. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, then I realized being 50 years old, that's like the only person, two people I know who are Jewish. And that's sort of odd. But it's not odd because I'm from the South. And you don't, they're like, 
it's different. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a lot of prejudice, and San Antonio is a southern town, it's like it or southern. not. I mean, we have Robert E. Lee Hotel yes. downtown. And he used to come here on vacation during summer, some mm-hmm. of Stonewall Jackson. Uh, the South, uh, you know, it's kind of strange, uh, has always blamed Jews for uh, crucifying Jesus. I say, well, uh, the Romans actually did the act. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and you're not anti-Roman, so. But, um, and it's not like Jewish people today had anything to do right. with right. it. So, uh, but it's still, and it runs in Southern literature, this, you know, kind of uh, you know, phobia against against Jews. That's very enlightening. I never, I never thought about that. I, I never thought about that. Hmm. hmm. See? Every day you learn something new. <laughs> Every day you learn something new. <laughs> but that's 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 very interesting. Being from San Antonio, and I've never ventured out much, it just seems that, I was going to say this, I went to Columbus, Ohio, and I walked around, walked to the museum. It's a beautiful museum. I mean, not the museum, the public library. It's a beautiful public library. And I just walked around, and I ended up in Germantown. Hmm. And I was like, this is very interesting because I never knew but again, I'm up north, so I walked around Germantown. It was it seemed nothing was touched. It made it updated, but this, this, the cottages, the, the houses were pretty much the same as they were in the early 1900s, 1940, something like that. But hmm. it's just odd that we don't have the same kind of historical preservation or like that here. Right. All our historical preservation is like downtown buildings. It's not like actual mm-hmm. neighborhoods or actually. Um, Things that could be identified as cultural, historical preservation, things of that nature. Right. Is that something you find in Louisiana, or is that something mostly up north? This is what happened around the nation, especially with um, poor neighborhoods and communities mm-hmm. of color. And you see it in San Antonio. Um, the east side, uh, the vibrant business community in San Antonio didn't have riots like Tulsa. Right. Mm-hmm. They built I-37. And throughout the nation, uh, New Orleans, uh, the traditional neighborhoods were uh, cut in two, were plowed under, over, uh, because when they built highways in the city, Chicago, uh, where I, near where I grew up at, mm-hmm. uh, you have Eisenhower Expressway that uh, divided the African-American community. Mm-hmm. And um, after World War II, especially after World War II, urbanization and uh, uh, the development of the modern city, uh, they didn't touch in a place like Chicago, um, really the ethnic neighborhoods except for where black and brown people live Mm -hmm. for the most part. And uh, the highways running through cities and then the development of, of certain businesses what really destabilized these traditional communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, we do see it in San Antonio and see it Atlanta all over that the cities today are not what they were pre-World War II. Right. Okay. okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. Again, that's a good conversation to have because I never... You think I've seen the North, and I see those differences that we have up there that we have here. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure we have the same thing down here, but why do we have them still? Why do they not preserve like they are up there? 
but that's an interesting point of view. Thank you for that. And Raquel, anything you want to chime in on? Because I'm no, I'm so sorry. You have such good questions. I'm just like I want to know all the answers. So I really good questions. Yeah, questions. (laughs) I mean, you covered pretty much everything that I wanted to ask. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. So my next thing would be, what's on deck for you? Well, I'm continuing to work on the uh, Robert Johnson project. um, And uh, the grant is for a little more than a year, but I will wrap up the work for the grant and continue with it. Uh, Hopefully, it'll turn into a a publishable book. Okay. And... um, I'm constantly working on something, uh, poetry, uh, nonfiction, uh, fiction. Um, I just don't work as long as I used to. Every morning I'm at a coffee shop working on something, and uh, then it's taking care of the house, which is <laughs> like mm-hmm. a job in and out. of itself. So when you just said um, you work on nonfiction and fiction, um, poetry or, or, you know, short stories, which one is your favorite? Do you have a preference or? They're like babies, you know. <laughs> you, know you can't uh, say one's the favorite. Yeah, okay. it's probably what's working best at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I, I don't, I don't really, uh, poetry is easier, mm-hmm. except when you're working on a book. Uh, the book I'm working on is hopefully going to read like a novel and mm-hmm. poems. But if you're just writing poems, sometimes a poem will come to, to you in five minutes. Right. And uh, uh, most of the work is done. But a novel is a, like a serious long-term relationship. Exactly. And uh, sometimes you... Uh, and trying to do that kind of work you mm-hmm. uh, distance yourself from everything you don't hang out with friends mm-hmm. uh, I knew a novelist who uh, wouldn't wash her hair and basically she you know she was a mess for yeah. better part of a year because she was working on a I novel mm-hmm. but a novel uh, a, a book of prose is a very demanding we used to say demanding mistress, but I think you have to say demanding partner nowadays. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, poems are things you play with. Right. So, uh, uh, but you know, if something works and it's good, and I can send it to a magazine or mm-hmm. an editor and get some good feedback and maybe a publication, that's what I love. Right. Awesome. So. I look forward to reading more of your work. Thanks. Would you have a website we could share with our viewers, our listeners, about where they could find your work and where they could find more about you? If you have any readings coming up, where they could find you? Sure. Uh, I have a, actually two websites uh, by accident and development. <laughs> one is just my name, reggiescottyoung.com, and one is um, uh, my initials, rybluesville.net. Okay. Um, someone gifted the second one to me, and I'm using that more for um, – uh, a blog and uh, information to put out uh, my old one, which is uh, the one reggiescottyoung.com. It just has information about me, more or less. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I was going to say also, I want to probably bring you back because I want to talk about your Bluesville, that yes. whole experience. So that's going to probably be another another episode. That'd be great. And this will be my last question. 
What do you prefer, tacos or burritos? Burritos to me are aberration. <laughs> uh, I mean, where do you go get a burrito in San Antonio other than uh, Chipotle? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, when I grew up, uh, it was around traditional Mexican American communities. I didn't know what a burrito was. I knew what a torta was. Ah. Uh, but not a burrito. So, uh, Great answer. You go to a city like Denver, uh, it's nothing but breakfast burritos. I'm like, what? <laughs> very true, very true, very true. I think that's a great answer. Burritos is it's not, not real. I agree. Tacos, 100%. Yes. <laughs> Sir, Reggie, Dr. Young, we truly appreciate you coming with us and talking with us today. Good luck, and we hope to see you again soon. Yes. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for helping me. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks for listening, and get connected on mysapple.org with Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, Pinterest, Flickr, Instagram, and follow tuned in on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music.